Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. William DeRiswitz is a writer and critic whose work has appeared in many places, Harper's, The Atlantic, The American Scholar, uh, among other venues. His books include Excellent Sheep, that was a big, a big hit a few years ago, and A Jane Austen Education. His new book is The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society, our topic today. Uh, welcome, Mr. DeRiswitz. Thanks for having me on. You, we jump right in to, to the book here. You summarize this collection as, quote, an attempt to defend and enact a certain conception of the self. What is that conception? Right. Well, I've come to think of this as the modern self. So this is the self that emerges at the beginning of modernity. Rousseau is not only the first uh, most important exemplar, but is the person who coins the term by which we come to know this self, and that is the word individual. As a noun, it did not exist before. Hmm. The way I understand this is, I mean, obviously many changes associated with modernity, but um, a lot of them have to do with the breakdown of all of those structures uh, of power and belief that told you what your life was going to be, who you were going to be, right? You know, you did what your dad did or what your mom did. Uh, your options in life were limited. Belief had been more or less dictated by religious and political authorities. And all of a sudden, all that is broken open. It's up for grabs. Um, people have the opportunity uh, and often the necessity to make their way in the world, not only economically and socially, but uh, to... Um, to decide for themselves who they want to be. I mean, I know it's not as simple as you don't just decide for yourself and make a list, but self-fashioning, right? Uh, in the sense that was, you know, that is uh, captured in the Bildungsroman, right? Which emerges in the late 18th century. Um, and in many other respects as well, right? So, and, and now, right, uh, you define yourself in... In, in some, to some degree or in some sense, in distinction from and sometimes in opposition to the group or groups. And this may not be most people, certainly isn't everybody, but let's say the educated classes, the advanced classes, the, the modern people, this is what it means to be a modern person. Yeah. This is the idea of personhood that I grew up with. Actually, I didn't really grow up with it. It's the one that I embraced when I was a young man. I'm very fond of this form of personhood. Um, it doesn't mean that we discard groups or affiliations or relationships. I don't mean that at all. 
It means the freedom to be a unique self, to be proud of that, to insist on that. And all of the um, intellectual and artistic riches that flow from that, I think that that form of the self is, is it's at the very least under intense threat and seems to be quite possibly to me to be passing out of history. We live now in an age of groups and we can talk about what that means. You, you, this could be related, although I think it's, you, you mean this, you mean this in a, in a, maybe a more complicated way here. You say in the first entry in the book, quote, the great contemporary terror is anonymity. <laughs> yeah. Anonymity. What, what do you mean by that? Well, that piece. And, and actually, and, and, and isn't it the word terror there? Yes. Not yes. just a concern, terror. Yes. Well, look, so that piece is the title piece, The End of Solitude. I wrote it in 2009. It came out of my the first year of my experience on social media, on Facebook. And what I was registering, and I think it's only become exponentially more true since then, is that in the age of social media, what, what everybody seems to want as the thing that's going to validate them is to be known as a, in, in, in the sense that a celebrity is known, like you want to be kind of a miniature celebrity, not known to your friends, not known to your intimates, but known to sort of the, the imagined masses on social media. Um, the terror is anonymity, is not to have that name, is not to be known. It's almost like you don't exist. Socially and often economically, you don't exist. And, and this is something, I mean, we, we, we've had concerns uh, in the past over, you, you, you use some of these phrases, submersion in the mass, you know, the, the talk about mass culture in the mid, in the mid 20th century, you know, essays like Irving Howe's, this age of conformity, all the talk about conformity during that time. And, uh, but now we've gone to, quote, fear of isolation from yeah heard you know that what happened to, what Henry what happened to Henry David Thoreau uh here right. but, but and, and you think the internet was the main driver yeah. or so social- again it's not like I mean we can talk about Thoreau and Emerson and, and other exemplary modern individuals obviously they were never the norm there was always attention uh mass society as it emerged and mass culture as it emerged especially after World War II was clearly a moment a period where a lot of thinkers felt a, a, a threat to sort of selfhood and individualism uh, coming both from, you know, communist collectivism and mass culture and mass society in the West. I don't think, in my mind, there's no question that the internet in general and social media in particular has taken this to an ap- a new and unforeseeable level. Yeah. Um, one distinction that I think is really useful, Andre Kudrescu, who you may remember is that very funny Romanian poet and critic who used to do short essays on NPR, um, he, he, he responded, he was responding in the very early days of the internet to the claim that the internet is better than TV because TV is passive and the internet is active. And so you're not just a couch potato. And he said, no, actually this is what makes it worse because you're actually participating in your own, uh, massification and you, you know, um, you're inviting this upon yourself. Yeah, 
I think he was 100% right. I remember the, the libertarians in particular, you know, the Wired magazine contrasting, yeah, the, the, the passive TV viewer and now, oh, Web 2.0, you know, we can talk back, we can give our opinions right. of things, right. we can rate products, we, we, we can talk about our experience in restaurants. Suddenly it's all, you know, the, the community is becoming alive in a way and we're going to have a million independent voices. Not, not quite what happened, is it, Bill? No, it's not quite what happened. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, since you asked me about anonymity, we've been talking about things that aren't necessarily on their face bad. But the ingredient that we have to add to this desire to be known, this terror of not being known, is that social media is an environment of intense conformity, right? The intense alignment with the group. You're known to your group, but as things have been has turned out, you must conform to the group. The group does not want dissent. The group does not want uh, an individual. You know, the group wants to feel good about its own opinions and choices. Is it more a matter of negative reinforcement than positive reinforcement? That is, that mm -hmm. is, the fear, the fear of expulsion is greater than the the comforts of belonging. It, no, 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 no. You're right. To, you're right to say that. It's both. It's absolutely both. I mean, you yeah. get all the strokes and all the likes. And then, I mean, I think I actually recently talked to two, one young woman who's in college and one young woman who's in high school, and they were asking me about Excellent Sheep and they were asking me about some of these issues. So it's, it's more present to me, like, especially the stereotypical teenage girl, but in some sense, all of us, right? So, you know, you, you post, say, a picture of yourself and you're so gratified when all your friends tell you how beautiful you are. But if not enough do, or not enough do fast enough, or if like the alpha girls in your school don't, then, oh, I'm horribly ugly, I want to kill myself. No. But like I said, we're all like that in whatever way that means for our, you know, a particular gender and age and whatever. Let me jump, uh, because there are many, many topics come up in the book and in the, in the many writings. What did Conrad's Heart of Darkness help you <laughs> communicate to the plebes at West Point? Right, I, right. I, I spent a few days at West Point. I, I wrote an article about the humanities at, at West Point and, and talked to the superintendent. This was about 15 years ago when I, I actually found the humanities pretty interesting uh, uh, in, in the hands of these these soldiers or future soldiers. But anyway, what did yeah. what, 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 what happened there when you when you talked? Right. Right. So, I, I mean, this was also about 15 years ago. This was 2009, 2009. And I, I was invited by probably some of the same people you met, including Elizabeth Samet or Samet. Uh, so three people in the English department. Um, they, because of the ESA we were just talking about, the end of solitude, they wanted me to talk to the plebes for the first years about why solitude was important to them. And I thought... Listen, I, I'm, I don't really know who these kids are. I'm used to talking to Ivy Leaguers. I understand. I have the same frame of reference that they do. It's gonna, I think it's going to be hard for me to get up as this sort of pointy-headed intellectual with wire-rimmed glasses, a civilian, and convince them that solitude is something they should care about. So I started with what I discern they do care about, which is leadership. And I should say that West Point is one of the few institutions or indeed one of the few locations in society where they actually mean by leadership what I would mean by leadership. It's something that has to do with other people and not self-aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. But um, I came out with a talk called Solitude and Leadership, 
What does it mean to be a true leader? What does solitude have to do with that? And in order to frame it, I made a distinction between real leadership, which often go, involves bucking the authorities, the trend, the, your superiors, and what passes for leadership. And um, I reached back into my experience, not only of teaching Heart of Darkness at Yale, but recognizing in uh, the figure, not Kurtz, but the manager of the central station, who's this creepy bureaucrat. Uh, so I realized, first of all, I mean, in addition to all the things that that book is about, it's really also a portrait of bureaucracy and, and mm -hmm. the, the moral distortions of bureaucracy. And I recognized in the manager of the central station, the chief bureaucrat, the person who was then the chairman of my department, <laughs> uh, who also didn't seem to have anything inside wouldn't even, I mean, the idea that they don't act, that they didn't act on their principles, they didn't have principles, it didn't occur to them that they ought to have principles. They were, and they were quite the mediocrity in general. So to me, that was the perfect image of the person who prospers in bureaucratic environments. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, I was going to say that, 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 that's very good. That, that clicks from my experience with a lot of very successful sort of upper managerial people, especially in academia, uh, a certain flexibility, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And, and very good radar for, or maybe, you know, radar is the wrong metaphor, but for which way the wind is blowing. Uh, they're, they're, that's they're, right. They're weather vanes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let me just say, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to toot my own horn, but that essay has by far the one that's traveled, the essay that, of mine that's traveled the widest, a lot of military people still contact me, business people. It was taught in business schools. Yeah. Uh, it's not just academia. I think it resonates with anyone who's been part of a bureaucracy. Yeah. What is the faux friendship phenomenon? F-A-U-X, right. friendship phenomenon. Right. So, so having written uh, The End of Solitude about selfhood and what social media was doing to it, by the time I finished writing the essay already, I realized that I wanted to write one about what social media was doing to our relationships. And it just so happens that before I uh, flunked out of academia, I was planning my next uh, academic book was going to be a cultural history of friendship in the modern age, because I think friendship undergoes a really fascinating transformation in modernity. It really wasn't that important a relationship before that in highly structured societies. And friendship was thought about very differently. Um, all of a sudden it becomes kind of the universal relationship. So we think about everybody, including parents and children and brothers and sisters and bosses and workers, and everybody's going to be your, your, your friend. So now, and, and again, I mean, friendships were incredibly important to me as a young man and, and still are. I think that's part of this sort of modern individualism because you are in a much less structured social environment and your affinities are elective. Uh, and I see social media screwing that up too. I mean, I don't want to overstate this because people still have what I would call real friendships. But on the other hand, from what I hear and from what are uh, about young people now and what some of them tell me, given how much their relationships are mediated by screens and other factors, there seems to be a lot less intimacy. I mean, there's surveys about this, right? I mean, people feel like they have fewer intimate friends. Um, we can talk about this more. Why social media? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, I agree with you. And I find that 
in a way they don't know how to to build that that real intimacy that would produce friendships. I mean, I, I I'll tell them, you know, if you've got four really genuine friends, you're very lucky. It, it's yeah. not easy. It doesn't just happen. You you it, it takes a little bit of a, 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 some giving. You have to overlook certain things in, in in your friends. You let them slide because they're your friends, and you know you you have a friend. You're out of touch for six months. You have a phone call, and and in, you know it's a friend because in three minutes you're right back where you were before. Uh, but I, I you know I I wonder if that that is a I don't know if it's a talent, if it's an impulse, an instinct. But the, the mediated friendships, you know, the, I've got 400 phrase, Facebook friends. If that, in fact, blunts or, or diminishes or teelates the, the capacity for the intimate, intimate friend, it, you know, it's not just the distance. It's not just the mediation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it gets into their heads and, and prevents. Anyway, I don't know what you well, think. No, no, no. I, I actually want to say more about this because I think we can go deeper as well. I think what you're saying is right. But I think, look, like selfhood, friendship rests on a set of practices. Friendship as I understand it. And those practices fundamentally are all, well, more or less, I think, off the top of my head, are all about long stretches of uninterrupted time. And it can take different forms. It can mean long conversations. Some people aren't as verbal. I mean, sort of the stereotypical masculine friendship, you know, you go fishing together and you don't necessarily talk a lot, but you are uh, intimately connected and in each other's presence for long, uninterrupted periods of time. Now, the listener can already, is already going to know the next thing, already knows the next thing I'm going to say. We don't have long, uninterrupted periods of time either to, to build a selfhood or to have build intimate relationships. And I think young people with their screen addictions and even more young people at places like Emory or Yale or selective colleges in general, they, they don't have time for anything. I mean, their lives are completely frenetic. And so they don't have the time for the friend and they don't have the time for the friendships, but also let's tie these things together. They don't have the selves they have not built the selves that can enter into that kind of intimate relationship. And I would say, I really haven't written about this, but I would say that no doubt the same thing is true of intimate romantic relationships. You have yeah. to bring a self into the relationship to be able to have a deep relationship. Resist junk food journalism. That is the clarion call of the First Things 2022 year-end campaign. No shrill moralizing, overwrought clickbait, and limp prose. Such writing, if we want to call it that, might taste good in the moment, but ultimately it fails to satisfy. Instead, we invite you to a sumptuous intellectual, spiritual, moral feast, essays, reviews, and poems written by leading lights of religious thought, complemented by other media such as the podcast you are listening to now. This is a better way. Join us to strengthen the vital nourishing work of First Things by making your tax-deductible gift to the 2022 year-end campaign today at www.firstthings.com backslash campaign. Thank you. you. You mentioned the elite colleges, and this is one of the major themes that you've been, you've been speaking of for many years. And 
you know, the question of, of the elite colleges that are so fiercely fought over and still by the aspiring doctors, lawyers, engineers, CEOs, scientists, <laughs> intellectual, yeah. maybe not intellectuals so much. How, how do they pose, as you put it, clear disadvantages for the kids who get in? Right. So this is my essay, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, kind of a clumsy title, but it sort of makes the point. And it's the essay out of which Excellent Sheep grew. And the point of the title is everybody knows the advantages of going to a highly selective college, and they are real advantages. And they have to do with all of the goodies that society tells you you should want, like wealth and power and status. I wanted to point out to people that there are a lot of disadvantages too, and I think on balance, the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. Um, it isn't even so much what happens at those colleges, although we can talk about that too. It's fundamentally about the kind of person you have to become by age 18 to get into one of those colleges. And I already gestured towards this. I mean, anybody in this, anyone close to this world already knows what the admissions rat race has become. No. I, I mean, I realized in retrospect that I was part of an embryonic form in the late 80s, uh, late 70s. The kids from my high school who went to Ivy League schools, you know, we would take, we would have like three APs and three extracurriculars. I don't even know if that would get doing into a branch campus of the University of Georgia at this point. I mean, the kids who get into the fancy colleges now have 10 or 12 or more of each of those things. And, and, uh, all of adolescence and sometimes earlier than adolescence, certainly starting in middle school, becomes just this endless rat race of jumping through the hoops that the grownups hold up to you. So what kind of person do you end up becoming by the time you're 18? You become a hoop jumper and you don't have the chance to do all of the developmental work that adolescents need to do to start to build what I called before a self. You don't know who you are. You don't know what you want. You don't even have the, the beginnings of a glimmer of those things. Is the student attitude with it that you saw when, when, you, were, when you were at Yale, uh, working at, teaching at Yale, uh, was that a, a factor in your alienation from academia, the, the I mean, I don't want to blame them. I don't, I don't mean blame No, 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 no. Let's, I mean, I lo listen, I loved my students and I cared about my students and I became friends with a lot of my students and I'm still in touch with a lot of them. I'm still friends with some of them. Um, I, I, first, I would never have left academia because I disliked my students. If anything, I, would, I wanted to stay to continue to help them. I did not leave, I, this is very important, and you know I have a whole essay about this. I did not leave academia out of some kind of principled refusal. I left because I'd never got my post-EL job, and one of the big reasons I didn't is that I spent a lot of time with my students. And, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to just do your research. Uh, why don't we go into that further uh, in, in terms of, in terms of why you left academia, why, I, I mean, you were writing for very prominent places like The Nation. And the Times uh, Book Review, yeah. That didn't, that didn't get you any, that didn't get you any credit on the job market? Well, you know exactly how this works. You're asking me a leading question. Everybody in academia knows how this works. The only thing that counts is peer-reviewed publication. Okay, writing for the New York Times Book Review, The Nation, The New Republic, whatever, counts 
nothing. And if anything, it counts against you. First of all, there's this sort of suppressed jealousy that nobody cops to. But, but, but I think more importantly, to be fair, is the feeling like you're not a serious enough scholar because you're spending time doing something else. And it's the same problem with teaching. Um, I have a friend who did manage to get tenure at Stanford, but uh, before he got tenure, he won a teaching award. And this is a literally true story. At this ceremony, the provost leaned over to him and said, don't worry, this is a good thing. <laughs> and he didn't know, he didn't even understand what that was, what that meant. But what it meant was, as the head of the Carnegie Foundation once said, winning the campus teaching award can be the kiss of death at tenure time. So that's where we are. And I recently read a wonderful book by Jonathan Zimmerman. It's the first history of college teaching in America called The Amateur Hour. He's at Penn. And he talks about how uh, students have been complaining about college teaching forever. And certainly since the rise of the PhD in the research university and the complaints are always the same and they're always quite legitimate complaints. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've read that book uh, that, that goes, does go way, way back in, into, you know, yeah. 200 some years ago. Would you have, would you have taken a job at, at say a, a second tier state school? I mean, what were, were you, what was it? Did the prestige thing get in, get into your head or? No, I apply. I mean, in that essay, I have that list of 40 schools that I applied to and they're the whole, they, they run the gamut in every respect, geographic, Canada, you know, prestige level. My, my preference would have been a liberal arts college. And I think it's no coincidence that the interviews that I did get were at liberal arts colleges. Uh, but uh, nobody ever wanted to hire me. And that was that. One, one of the things you talk about in, in the humanities uh, that, that disappointed you was the loss of the love of books, the, the sort of the loss of bookishness uh, in the humanities in, in, in general. Well, what happened there? How did this happen? Yeah, I mean, I didn't put it, I, I didn't put it that way, but I mean, you know, I figured out very quickly when I started graduate school in 1989, having gone because I loved reading and I wanted to transmit the love of reading, that, that not only wasn't this what that was what this was about anymore, but that the the values embodied in the love of reading were antithetical to what the project of the humanities had become, which we all know now because they've now taken over all of society or all of liberal elite society, uh, dismantling the patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, books are evil, Shakespeare's evil. We need to deconstruct the Foucauldian power systems, you know. And then, you know, somebody like Franklin Trickia, who was one of the theory stars who was hired by Stanley Fish at Duke in the 80s. Then later he writes a memoir saying, oh, I loved books all along, but I would close the door and I wouldn't let it. He was like, screw you, man. Yeah. Count when it counts. Exactly. Except, you know what? I'm not even sure there are a lot of Franklin Trickias anymore. I kind of really feel like the people in the humanities now, the younger generations of professors, they, they actually believe this crap. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was disappointing to me. The the spread over the over the decades of the loss of a, a sort of a generalist, you know, the 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 sort of the broadly educated humanities uh, professor who you know read widely, could teach survey courses uh, in different different areas. Uh, the specialization, the big yeah. factor, the, the the turn, the heavy turn to theory and social social issues. Um, I, I think that that actually is uh, uh, it, it gets boring fast. That, 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 that was my experience. Why do you call why do you call secular selective colleges, liberal arts colleges, 
religious schools. Right. So this is the, the, the essay called On Political Correctness. And you can date it because it was still called political correctness then, not wokeness. But, uh, you know, so I left Yale and academia in 2008. And then as a result of Excellent Sheep, primarily, I was able to teach for a semester at the Claremont Colleges in the spring of 2015. And like almost literally the moment I walked on campus, certainly the first conversation I had on campus alerted me to the new environment, which we now call wokeness. And the people who think about this most date to around 2013, 2014. So all of a sudden, this this political correctness, which I had known in English departments, graduate departments, was everywhere. Uh, on campus, my students, it was just the subject of many, many, many conversations. So I started to think about it, and I started to do what I often do, which is kind of make analogies to other areas of experience in order to understand this. And it had, and, and I should also say, I grew up religious. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community. So, so many of the characteristics, you know, what you have to do, what you can't do, what you can't say, what you have to say, uh, you know, sort of prof prophetic voices that are not, never questioned. You know, if Bell Hooks says something, and then later now, if Kendi says something, it must be true, and so on and so forth. You, you, you're a solid man of the political left, but for many years you've been you've been a you've been a critic of that kind of identity politics yeah. and, and woke. Uh, are there? I, I don't think there are many of you, but are are the numbers growing? Do do, do you yeah. form? Do you feel you're part of a community? Do do you talk? I'm. I'm, 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 I guess this is an invitation. <laughs> I'm not inviting gossip, but uh, do, do you think that there is a growing number of, of left-oriented intellectuals who are getting more outspoken against the woke? I don't think there's any question about it. Um, uh, we see institutions being built like uh, Liberty's Magazine, uh, which I write for, Leon Weasel Tears Journal, uh, all people writing on Substack, people doing podcasts, there's Heterodox Academy. I mean, some of those people may be center or right. You know, I listen to Andrew Sullivan, who's great about this, but a lot of them are liberal or left. And so my left, my leftist, my progressive politics, my soft left politics are basically Bernie Sanders type New Deal social democracy. Uh, to me, that's perfectly compatible with a critique of wokeness. And if no. anything, and again, Sullivan and others have expressed this much better than I can, uh, wokeness is fundamentally anti-liberal. It's illiberal in the sense of liberal democracy. So it's not even like my form of progressivism has gone too far. It's a different form. Yeah. It's not what I recognize as true liberalism at all. Yeah. Well, what was, what was the formula Daniel Bell had? He said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a socialist in matters of economics, I'm a liberal in matters of politics and I'm a conservative in matters of culture. What, what, I think yeah. that's what you go with that. Well, I'm not sure what it means to be a conservative in matters of culture, but uh, traditional, just, just putting that in brackets, putting that in brackets. In other words, I'm not sure that I will sign on to everything it means because I'm not sure what it, what it means. I, yes, I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, last question, uh, Bill, you, I'll study a while back. Uh, appeared in neuroscience showing that reading fiction makes <laughs> you more inclined to empathy. Now, now, you didn't like that news story on the study. Why, why, why is that? Right. That, so there's a little piece in there called Studies Show Arts Have Value. 
And it's, yeah. an, it's an attack on this fetishization of studies. You know, if a science scientist or still worse, a social scientist shows that something is true because they, you know, did a saliva test with 50 undergraduates, uh, then all of a sudden the journalist now accepts it as true. And, and, and these are things like the, the fact that arts have value or that reading fiction can help you be a more empathetic person. These are things that the humanities and the arts have known for centuries, that people have known for centuries. And the idea, you know, this was trotted out as like, oh, good news, fiction has value. But to me, it actually demeans the value of fiction because the value of fiction is that it is a form of truth. It's a different form of truth than science, but it is a form of truth. This actually gets us back to what you were saying about specialization and over-specialization in the humanities. I think the great mistake the humanities have made is to try to uh, sell themselves to the rest of the academy and the rest of society as a form of scientific knowledge. Well, scientific. In other words, knowledge in the sense that science establishes the paradigm of knowledge, which is, you know, positivist accumulating knowledge. That is not the main thing that the humanities do. And if it tries to fight on those terms, it loses. Yeah, yeah. You, you actually have an, another piece talks about this distinction of progressivism in science and, and versus, you know, progress in, in, in the arts and culture. But for now, yeah. uh, I, I invite uh, listeners to, to read the essays. You're, you are a brisk and lively pointed uh, prose stylist. Uh, the book is The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Uh, William DeRiswitz, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.